You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, this fall, I have been rocking a new pair of boots from Lacrosse out of their Navigator series, right? And I must say, they are very comfortable. They're waterproof, and what they've done is they've taken the best part of their traditional rubber boot, and they've kind of smashed it together with a traditional hiking boot or your average hunting boot. And now what we have is a perfect mix of being comfortable, it's not bulky, and it's waterproof and uh, very comfortable. So if you want to find out more about their new Navigator series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome to another Land and Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dye, and it is November, sweet, sweet November. I'm sure everyone is just out in the woods as much as possible, downloading, listening to me, podcasts, talking about November, and everyone's tired of hearing it and would rather just be in a tree ready to rock and roll. But we have got an awesome podcast for you guys today talking about what we're all doing, and that is hunting deer that are on the move and covering some ground. And we've got a success story for you guys, um, and that story involves Mr. Seth Harker himself, who just had an awesome hunt this past week. So this information, the the details, the behavior that this deer exhibited is just super um, up-to-date and, and ready for you guys to be able to learn. I'm sure there's going to be Tons of little teaching moments, tidbits to be able to apply directly to your season this year. So hopefully you guys are ready to sit back and enjoy a good podcast. But I want to make sure Seth Harker is there. Seth, can you hear me? Yep, I got you loud and clear. All righty, man. What a a fantastic season so far from a weather aspect. Have Have you ever really recalled here in the Midwest a October, late October, early November situation that we've had this type of weather conditions to be able to hunt in? I, I haven't, and it's, um, I don't know, when you when you put that with November, I mean, you've got the recipe for success, and man, the weather has been awesome, and man, I, tomorrow and Tuesday Ooh. is late late season temperatures yes i mean late um, season yeah I mean, <laughs> the, like december january temperatures yeah no doubt i mean the day that this podcast will release we've got temperatures forecasted down to i think it's 11 or 12 degrees um with a stiff stiff wind out of the, the north um and and highs right at i think it's right at 30 so it climbs a little bit more than than what it was a couple of days ago however those temperatures, they just don't typically occur here at this portion of November. But we'll take them, and we'll we'll do yeah. our best. We'll take them. And even though it's the right, my prediction still is um, if we have temperatures like that into our Missouri gun season, I mean, the deer focus is still going to be around. If you've got food, if you have food plots, if you have soybeans, corn, corn, wheat, Nebraska, whatever the case is, you are going to be in the chips because I will promise you 
go family groups, they're going to be centered around the food in these cold temperatures more so than what they would be if it's warm. And those bucks are going to be cruising and checking, and you're going to be in the chips. There is, there's a lot of information that's kind of led into this podcast with uh, uh, videos, podcasts, magazines, articles, whatever it is that just talks about the rut every single year. But there's really... To just break it down, there's a, like, a few principles that you just have to keep in mind and pick your stands according to those principles from beginning of the season to the end of the season. And despite what you hear about a lot of things during the rut, there are exceptions. Most times you may not want to be hunting over a ton of food. You want to be in those bottlenecks, the transitions to dense cover. But in the exceptions that we're talking about this week with this type of weather, regardless of the rut, and bucks chasing, deer have to eat, and they have to regulate their body temperatures with high food intake, and that means they're going to be spending time on food. And so if you're hunting close to that during these types of conditions that we're going to be experiencing, and, and a lot of a lot of states are going to be experiencing Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday type frame this week, really consider getting back a little bit closer to those food resources to Seth, like you said, a deer's just got to eat in those conditions. It's going to be 12 okay. degrees. They've got to eat. And typically for me, if I can get, you know, during late season, and if I still had a buck tag, I would apply the same um, apply the same principle. But when I see the second or third day of extreme temperatures in the teens, for us where we're at, maybe it doesn't affect them the farther you go north. Maybe they're used to it. But for where we're at, um, and the deer that I'm familiar with, that third day, man, I mean, yep. golly, they, they they have used a lot of energy, not only with the rut, um, chasing and, and doing the things they do in the rut, but just keeping their bodies warm. So they've got to have fuel. They're, I mean, they've got to have fuel. Yep. Yeah. They're, they can only run on empty so long. And, and when you look at the whole course of November, yeah, the deer have been, you know, checking and moving and, and covering quite a bit of ground, but really this is still the very front end of rut activity. So right. they're, they have to fill those tanks, and, and and it's not like that, you know, drive to food, let's say, that, that December 1 time frame where they've gone through the whole month of November. However, they're still experiencing a lot of uh, movement. They're still experiencing really cold temperatures. So to some degree, they will be focused or in and around food sources more so in the next couple of days. So take that into note as you're heading to the tree. Um, Seth, that's okay. Right off the bat, there, there's one great little tidbit that we can look into for the next coming days. But to go back, backtrack just a few days ago, you had an incredible hunt on a, I believe a six and a half year old deer that you've had a lot of history with. And you're here to tell the story today of, okay, how you've been able to track this deer, what you've been able to glean off of information and then apply it to this year and the conditions that we talked about um, experiencing through late October, early November and made a fantastic shot, quick recovery of a hundred and, 57 inch deer what two eights 157 and two eights is that right yep which was surprising because i had him off typically i'm within five inches and my trail camera pictures i was like ah 148 150 so it's one of those deers that you get up to and you're like wow look at those beans mm -hmm. well you were there look yeah. at those beans wow he, <laughs> look he, at the spread i he, thought he was 18 <laughs> Wow. So yeah, the right. inches just kind of That's always a great surprise. I mean, a lot of times we talk about ground shrinkage, and that would be the second deer that I've has actually been a little bigger than what I thought when we harvested them and then from trail camp photos. So good sure. surprise. Great, great surprise, no doubt. Um, but, but this is a deer that you've called whiplash. And you kind of talk mm -hmm. about it in the recovery, but I think as a as a three and a half year old, you found the the shed, and as soon as you found the shed, right. you said this deer at some point is going to give a lucky hunter whiplash because they're going to have to take a second look as this thing is coming through the timber on them. So let's yeah. let's kind of go back to you know that 
that stage in, in your uh, information gathering of Whiplash. Lead us into um, you know, really getting eyes set on him to making this harvest. So Whiplash, um, which before I ever even named him, um, he was actually a spike. Um, and he just liked, he just liked our farm. He liked the setup, um, and he would typically show up. So I'll get into that a little bit later. But in the fall, um, when the leaves started to fall, but I actually met Whiplash or came to know Whiplash six years ago. I was hunting. Um, I believe there was a buck named Comrade that I was hunting, um, um, and a few others. It's been so long ago I can't remember. But Comrade, which is a really old deer, I was hunting Comrade. And whiplash, I noticed a deer come into the food plot and just had his uh, his left ear. The lobe was just, it was just kind of hanging. It had a huge notch in it. Hmm. I thought, well, I, I need to mark that down. Um, I need to note that because the one reason that I thought that, uh, and this is just a tip for all you guys who manage deer, um, it's interesting to know what a deer becomes. That was a spike, and I think that that's a key thing that we need to um think about that was a spike deer are you telling me one and a half that that a spike isn't always a spike says is that what you're trying to say uh, a spike isn't <laughs> always a spike no, oh, i had neighbors at this exact time and this is probably why um it was so prevalent on my mind i had neighbors which they don't lease the farm any anymore but they leased the farm um, just east of the 530, mm-hmm. uh, which you know where that's at. Um, and they were shooting spikes, telling me they were calling deer. And I'm just, you know, cringing. Oh, why would you do that? Um, you know, and, I, and I'm not going to sit there and tell someone what not to shoot and what to shoot. If you want to shoot a spike and you're happy with shooting a spike, that's awesome. But if you're shooting a spike, to say that you're overall helping um, quality deer management and that it's overall helping your herd, that is totally wrong. And whiplash is proof of that. Great Uh, proof. So at that point, so even a button buck, if if I see a button buck that has some sort, now it's very rare, but has some sort of defining feature um, that I can possibly follow, I'm documenting it. I'm like, okay, we need to save these photos away. We need to make a mark of it because that's, you know, we want to see what this deer evolves into. I, I want to see what he goes, and there's not too many deer. Most of the deer we start following, let's face it, we don't really get the identity with them until they're three years of age to where we can really start following them, sometimes possibly four. I'm not sure. Sure. I, I think that's most, a great point, Seth, that, you know, you, you take something that seems so insignificant at the time, you know, a, a spike buck. But it's got a identifying feature, and, and as a hunter, as a as a land manager, deer manager, someone who wants to grow quality deer over time on a place, now you've got a basis, a, a set of images over the course of X amount of years to watch a deer grow and watch it, how it relates to different, uh, let's say maybe seasons, environmental conditions, changes to the landscape yeah. that you might be making you're really right. able to document that deer and, and whether, whether you didn't do anything to the land, let's just take that out of the equation. You're able to see how a deer just simply matures in your area, period. Right. Well, again, whether you do anything yeah. or not, it's just what is, what is a, a random sample of the general deer herd? What is this capable of doing? And you have that. Right. Right, which is totally cool to be able to do. It, it's um, it's cool, and it's a great learning experience, incredible learning experience. Right, yep. So Whiplash, um, the next year, I believe, if memory serves me, or I, don't, I need to get back on my drive, he was a seven-point the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a mainframe seven-point. Um, he still hung around um you know typically show up in the fall um and i would just kind of see him running around i'd always notice that big defining year um he just kind of 
slipped through the cracks and, and always made it through gun season. When he turned into a three-year-old, that's when he got his name. Um, you could tell the frame on him was just, you are like, wow, if, if he keeps going with his frame, you know, like you, you introduced, he's going to give some hunter a whiplash. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, he just kept kind of compounding on the, the, the frame as he matured. He did the same thing. So at three years old, I'm planning a hunt. I'm not planning on killing him at three. Sure. But I at, at three years old now, okay, he's been on the farm, and I've never got to follow a deer quite like this for this many years. But so we've gathered all this information. There was one um, one thing lacking that I had no idea about him, and it's something that I needed to gather. So that's what I, I went to in year four and five. What I was needing to know or what I felt like I was needing to know to put more of the pieces together is where in the world he went during the summer. Sure. Um, sometimes you can't gather that. And I also wanted to figure out if I could figure out where he was bedding. Um, while which, while know, he was there during was, the fall? Well, while he was there during the fall, I wanted to know, um, you know, that first of September, October, a lot of times he wouldn't show up till October. Um, so there was that spot in the, the uh, early part. I wanted to fill in those pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. The more information I feel like I can gather on a deer, the better chance I have of harvesting. So I know he's there late. Um, I know that's a given, which is a great tactic. But also I know we have a great gun season in November and anytime I can, I can get to harvest the buck I'm after before gun season, I feel like I have a better chance that he's not going to get harvested in gun season when it's a free for all. So I always try to gather as much information. So that's what I did. And I wanted to know where his bedding area was. Um, I wanted to know where he was spending the summer months. I thought possibly he could be on the outer skirt of the 360, mm-hmm. um, which is 360-acre track. I thought, well, maybe he could be on those outer skirts. So I picked up the shed, gave him his name at three. Um, and at four and five, I really focused on um, figuring out where he spent the off-season and some of these other parts of the time. So at four, I begin to put a few more pieces of the puzzle together. Um, I did that all through trail camera images, uh, period. That That is how I came up with this um, as far as figuring out these early um, puzzles. So as I'm gathering trail camera photos, I start noticing where I'm getting more pictures of him. You know, obviously, if you're getting more pictures on camera, a, then you are B, there's something to be said, and you scratch your head, okay, why am I getting more pictures of them here? So at four, I start moving cameras around, and I actually just leave them out all season. Uh, and that actually uh, shifted me to the, let's see here, it would be the southeast corner of the 360. So right. from four to five, I start shifting on this. There's this hillside. Um, thick, nasty. I actually went in late season, um, let's see, two years ago, and I, there was huge community scrapes, and it's a place you, there's no way possibly that I know of a guy can even get in there to hunt. Right. I mean, if you could tunnel your way in there and dig you a secret tunnel in, I looked at, <laughs> there was this tree in there, and I was like, man, if I had a ground tunnel in here, you, I mean, I'm telling you, you could kill him, but there's no way you could get in there. there sure. is, it would be impossible. Um, so with that being said, I'm like, okay, this is definitely a sanctuary. They are, he, I feel like he's spending his time here. So I had a camera that I had deployed on that scrape, and I left a big community scrape. Um, I left it, I don't know, eight or nine months, came back, got the batteries. They were dead. Sure enough, he had been in there. So at that time, I start focusing, and I put cameras around this little corner, this ridge. Um, and what I find out is through the summer months, I get a few pictures of this deer in velvet, mm-hmm. um, in daylight. Sure. Some, 
sometimes at noon. That wow. told me right there um, that he was betting right here. And I'm like, okay, he is betting right here close. Um, also, the cameras that I left deployed, I also um, got a few pictures of Whiplash um, throughout his velvet growing from when he when he had stumps. When you There again, we knew because of the notch, he cruised sure. by. I'd see the notch, and I'd be like, oh, that's Whiplash. Now, we didn't get a lot right there, but we figured out that he was using this corner right here. Um, and that is really what led me to knowing where he was betting and the way that ridge ran. It was actually, it's, it's the side of that ridge goes into a hollow. The head of that hollow has one, two, three, four, five fingers off of it. You get on the topography map, you can see five five fingers at the head of that hollow. And it's a deep the deep hollow. Um some of them are more defined than others, but he can from where I get most of the pictures when he was in summer, he did one or two things. He did more things, but um the pattern that I got, he would actually head um, to the south of the 360 and head over to the neighbors, which is a great big sanctuary. The guy doesn't allow much hunting at all, um, which is what he did last year. Or he would go to the North Ridge and cruise up to the buffet. Um, and when the rut really got heated up, he would actually cross the highway, go to the 530 down in the bottom cornfield, cruise up around Dove Creek, and then typically come back up. Now, this is very, very important because keep in mind, we're talking about the rut. Mm-hmm. And over, over the next two years here, or three, four, five, and six, um, I I mean, and I know that this does not sound very normal, and I'll say that it's not normal. I mean, to this extent, now I've done it to a lesser extent, but keep in mind, we're patterning a deer in the rut. Um, which you don't hear and which if, if I didn't do it, I wouldn't believe it. But when, when you break, break that down for someone, Seth, break that down as to what you mean by patterning him in the rut, patterning as in he's going to be on, let's say four scrapes within, you know, 400 yards of one another, you know that, okay, the, this is the, this is the core area of when he is, when there is rut activity going on, this is kind of the, the portions of the 316 that he is frequenting checking most commonly. That's what you mean as in patterning during the rut, correct? Correct. And that as well as history repeated itself from three, four, five, six. History, I mean, you could almost lay a, an overlap of weeks sure. of how the deer actually began to man, maneuver throughout the property and what, what he was doing. Um, there again, the clear cut changed it a little bit um, that you and I talked about. Mm-hmm. And probably what the clear cut did, it necessarily didn't change things drastically but it kept him more localized. I feel like I think the does were more localized. Um, He still was, um, his circle kind of shrank a little bit this year. Sure, sure. Um, And I think possibly was due to the clear cut, but, well, and, and I think that's a great that's a great reminder, though, too, of, of when you go in and do those types of, let's say, larger scale habitat improvement or, or logging operations. Those first couple years, you're going to get that growth back that we talk about so much on the Habitat Focus podcast. But what that does during the rut, though, is localize or centralize that type of movement that you're wanting to get from deer if if you're out there and saying I, all I get is deer that just cruise by or pass by I'm not I'm not holding deer on my property sounds like you need to right. be doing things that create that type of cover where by default then you'll have deer behavior on your property that you want to have where where it's consistency where you know during the right times of the year I can go there and experience and witness rutting behavior because the habitat supports that type of deer behavior. 
And you saw it across the 360 with the deer, but now after that clear cut got implemented, you saw it where it was a, a, let's say a more defined, well-defined core area that you could capitalize on. Not that you couldn't capitalize at four and five, but it did help to just kind of concentrate some movement and really put some puzzle pieces together. Right. And I think there's two things to be said about that. What it did was obviously, um, if you have does, you have bucks. Sure. And does absolutely, not only for um, from a food stance, obviously the food benefits of a clear cut, but they have, I've watched it time and time and time and time again. In the pre-rut period, when the bucks are really hounding the does, um, I'm telling you, if there's a clear cut around close to good, good um, food plots and everything else that goes in with what we do, those does, they literally can lose bucks in a clear cut. I've seen it time and time again. They get in those tops, they get in those trees, and the bucks struggle to get them kicked up out of there. I mean, I've yeah. seen them oh, yeah. weasel through there. And they will go right in those tops, and the buck will sit there and circle, and then he'll get he'll go on off. But um, so there's two things: not only food, um, you know, it just it just concentrates does. Um, I think that was really the shift because that would have been the second that would have been the second good growing year for mm-hmm. that clear cut, which is really good for a clear cut. And how many acres it does? It look the the response that you're getting out of that clear cut is phenomenal. How many acres was that clear cut? Uh, I want to say it was four, 35. Okay, yep. 30, 35 or 40. I can't quite remember the exact stand now. 35 or 40, I want to say, right. that one. Which, which is a fan, like a big size. Like you're making a, a really big impact across several properties. It's not just the 360 that you're impacting with that. You're holding a lot of deer, and, and deer – truthfully, that you may not know that are there, or you may have uh, a, a glimpse of, of an other deer, but at 35 acres with dense cover, you can't really, so even if you have trail cameras sometimes, survey that area to the extent of knowing exactly who's in there, what all is occurring, but you're impacting a lot of deer by doing that. And I think in having a clear cut of that size, though, too, is you're giving deer, whether they are bucks or does, but let's just call bucks, you're giving them an opportunity, a higher increased rate of survival through gun season by having that large of a dense concentration of cover. You know, they're going to be held up oh, in yeah. the center of that property now, and that's going to be the focal point for many of the surrounding neighbors, not just random movement across, you know, hundreds of acres we're really concentrating that by going out and doing a logging operation like you did there on the 360 35 40 acres of it right yeah and that that uh the clear cut on the 530 the old clear cut i believe mm-hmm. 14 years now could use a little burn use a little tlc which we did run a, a fire through it three or four years ago but um could use a little tlc but um 14 years ago um when we started management of that property, the first two years we had it, there was one thing I knew about, and you know the clear cut I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. You can't walk through it. Oh. Uh, but what I knew noticed the first two years ago, every gun season, dude, those bucks from the neighboring property blocked mm-hmm. to that clear cut. Um, keep in mind there were 14 hunters who um, – hunted this property that we've now maintained for 14 years but they hunted it and it was just your typical meat kill as many deer as you can if you've got tags sure you kill them and the other neighbors told me that um well one of the neighbors said that they shot turkeys with right i mean it was shoot them up bang them up so right right i i i knew quickly when i got there what or what i noticed quickly when i start that i'm like i'm sitting there gun hunting and i'm like wow look at all the deer flock in fact i'm sitting there on a still morning and all i hear is antlers bang, bang, and just right running through this clear cut and just antlers just hitting and i mean 
I'm looking at these other bucks crossing the open field as it's getting daylight, and everybody's just going into this clear cut. Just piling in, piling in. So there's a lot of benefit to the clear cut. But um, where were we at? Getting getting back to whiplash and, and that clear cut kind of concentrating some movement these past two years and what that related to you this year killing them just a few days ago. Right. Okay. So, um, and he is getting older. Um, mm-hmm. so we're talking about the clear cut, um, possibly having the effect of shrinking the actual footprint, um, of his pattern. Um, and then we were talking about actually patterning a deer during the rut. And I feel like I could tell you, and, and I know you guys, probably are raising your eyebrows at me and thinking I'm crazy. And if I hadn't witnessed it, I would too. But I feel like, because I did it um, from four to five, but I feel like that the whole month of November that I was going to be within shooting distance of whiplash or could be on a lot of my hunt. Sure. Um, I feel like I know where that deer was. I feel like I know the doe family groups that he was, uh, um, that he was going to be pursuing just because of the history that I had with him over the prior years um, and actually documenting that. Um, in fact, I documented the Doe family groups um, that I, you know, we have these small micro pots. You know how they're staggered throughout yep. there. Yep. And for from November, on November 11th to 14th, um, the first food plot on the 360, you know which one I'm talking about. Right. Whiplash would be on that Doe family group. He was the last two years. I mean, within a week, he, he was there. Um, and then from the 14th through the 16th, um, for whatever reason, he would be on the completely west end of that farm. Um, in fact, you and I hunted him in that far west food plot. He was just, for whatever reason, that was his line. Yep. Um, and then as season, as November got in, man, and I don't know if this means anything, but his circle got really large as you got into the 20th to the 30th, the circle was extremely large. Um, and then he would typically, um, start going back to scrape line. Right. Is where I, where I would start catching him is on the scrapes, um. Now then, with that being said, there's a lot of deer, and there's deer in his bachelor group um, that I know. And I'll just tell you right now, I have no idea where they are right now or what they're doing. Not a clue. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, Whiplash was a deer that I could keep up with and follow and, and did and have no idea why or how, but we've talked about it a hundred times. It's just the personalities, and if, if you're lucky enough to unlock one of the personalities of these deer, um, and, he's, and he's one you, you're pursuing, you've got to leg up on the deer, obviously. I think that there's a lot to be said, and, and you know, you hear the phrase, the devil's in the details, and if you have the ability to be able to really utilize the trail camera information for more than what it is, it's not just a picture, but, you know, analyzing it and, and recording that information and remembering year to year, that is super, super valuable for many deer. Not, you know, you know it's not just the, his personality. We've seen it, you know, we're watching deer right now on the Prairie Hollow property. Uh, we, as we were kind of recording pre-show, got an email. Um, uh, it's a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old. I mean, really, really incredible. And he did the exact same thing as he's doing right now during this exact same time frame. I could draw a circle and of, of a 40-acre little portion of that three-and-a-half-year-old. Three if we wanted to go in there and see him and witness him and observe right. him, we'd be right there in that 40-acre little circle because that's just what he does. That is where he's at. That's the area that he is patrolling. did it last year. He's doing it right now. There's a beautiful 10-pointer. Right now, he could draw probably a little bit larger one. He, he's got a little bit um, more of an area right. where we're seeing him. But I could draw him, point you and say, okay, this is the deer you're probably going to encounter. And I think that there's a lot to be said about that because you're going to watch from two and a half to three and a half. And, and then at that point where four or five, when, you're, when you might want to be harvesting that animal, you're going to know where to go and you're going to know where not to go, where not to waste your time. And, and I think that's yeah. what makes you 
that that by knowing that and having that information, it makes you that wiser hunter that you're not protruding in and, and and let's say compromising hunts down the road. I think Adam and Chad this week talk about, you know, keeping farms fresh and, and moving around the farm and hunting the fringes and knowing when is the time to strike and when the time is not to strike. And it's not just a time of the rut, but it's a time of when is that deer during what time, when is he the most vulnerable? And you can only get that yeah. by watching them and being patient with them. If if you run into a deer you don't know, you know, and, and he's a deer that you want to take, by gosh, there's nothing at all against that. But if you're sitting back wondering, you're making these habitat improvements on your property and you're watching these deer, take into account what they're doing. And it's so easy to, Seth, I think, from, you know, late October to um, through November to honestly not necessarily let your trail cameras just kind of go unchecked or anything. However, you may not just be paying attention to him, or you might just say, oh, that's just a weird occurrence. It's the rut. He just chased a doe over there and just really kind of blow those instances off and not be as, as, as detailed and checking them as you would early season where you're just kind of concentrating on food resources and same thing late season. You're just, Oh, are they going to show up here? And you're really putting a lot of energy into the trail cameras. Even though the rut is kind of random, there's still so much good information to get from them. And, and you've done that. You've shown that year after year with whiplash. Yep. And that's actually what led me to, um, obviously, um, saddle, tree saddle, yep. where where I did tree saddle. Um, keep in mind this was the third third hunt mm-hmm. um, that that we had hunted for him and um, little pine tree. Um, and it hit me. There's a huge community scrape. There's three cedars there on the east end. Um, big cedars. I'm talking like log cedars. Why we left those cedars in there, I don't know. I was sitting there the other night. <laughs> why did we leave these cedars here? Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that the other night, actually, why I was there. And all three of them, dude, have a freaking scrape as big as a truck hood underneath them. Oh, that's funny. Well, what what led me to hunt there? Well, I had an encounter with Whiplash, I don't know, a week or two prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came out right there again, came into the field. I mean, I literally watched him come into the field as I'm sitting uh, 90 yards away. I'm like, man, he always comes in right there. He always goes to those community scrapes. Man, if I ever get a picture of him in this food plot, he always goes and stages right there the way those three cedars set right there. A lot of bucks will come out in there, yep. and they'll just stage up. They'll scrape. They'll make rubs right there. And then as it gets darker, they just pop right out in. And it's funny like, the way they... the way that, that little field, it kind of rolls and, and plateaus just a little bit further past those cedars into a, a bigger field where they can see more at the cover of darkness, probably feel a little yeah. bit more comfortable. So it's it's naturally, even though it's, it's still a portion of the field, they're just not quite as exposed as the rest of the field. So it's it's unique to see and take into account they're doing that activity, the scraping, the rubbing, the staging in that portion of the field versus wide open food plot. Right. Yep. And that's after I seen him that night come out right there, I was like, man, I have watched that deer hunting this food plot come out right there, you know, I don't know how many times. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I I need to put a saddle right there, and if, if he comes in here, that's where he's going to come in here. I just feel like, and it'll be in bow range. Yeah. I just feel like that's where he'll come in there. Um, and sure enough, so the third time I hunted it, we'd actually run him late. Um, yep. You and I had been talking. You're like, hey, man, I'd like to meet up, blah, blah, blah. And finally, I'd, you know, I saw a missed call from Matt, and then I tried to call Matt, and Matt was with the client, and then, anyways, I don't know, it was like 3, three o'clock? It was it was getting on to 3 o'clock, that, and, and we've had time change, so it was getting dark at 5.30 or so. So, yeah, we were, we were kind of under the gun of trying to get somewhere and figure something out, for sure. 
Right. And you were you were in Hartville, Mansfield? Yeah, Hartville area. Yeah, you were in Hartville area and I was like, Man, oh man, I've still gotta do my ordering. There's a long story short. Did the ordering and I'm like Yeah, work, work. <laughs> I'm like, I need to do those uh or I need to get those muddy sticks off the tree. And long story short, I was like, if I'm going to go get those muddy sticks off the tree, why don't I just climb up there with the tree saddle and hunt and then pull the muddy sticks off the tree? Yeah. <laughs> Seems so like I told Matt, yeah, like I told Matt when we were there, you never go to the buffet unless you get there by 2 o'clock. Right. Because there's usually deer the poured latest. in. Yeah, at the latest, you never. And um, anyway, so I climb up, and I mean, I know more than get buckled in, and here comes the first doe. She was at the very far east end of the food plot, and she kind of milled around there, and then the next thing I know, time went on by, and I don't know where she went, and then the doe fawn, and I... Um, buck pond i see two deer running and they just run 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 that's the thing about these cedars deer always run to these and kind of just hang around them for whatever reason and they come under the first one and they just stop kind of go under the canopy of the cedar and they're just looking back and i'm like oh there's a buck behind them there's got to be a buck behind them and this went on and they're just looking 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 and i'm sure a buck was chasing their mother but it never materialized and Mm. uh then they come over and they walk behind me uh, and they mill around doing their thing, uh, eating a few red oak acorns and then come back out in the food plot. Um, and then I hear another doe actually crunching acorns on the logging road. Um, and I turn around and look at her and I'm like, oh, there's another doe. And then these doe fawn and buck fawn, they kind of separate and we're milling around and I look up and I saw Whiplash. And I, oh, you don't have to know who Whiplash is. You know that friend. That's an instant. That's Whiplash. Yeah. So I grab my bow instantly because I'm like, he's going to that scrape. He is going to the scrape. Right the cedar. Goes to yep. Yeah. Well, long story short, he goes to the doe, the doe fawn. Goes to the doe fawn, um, kind of charges her just a little bit. Um, and then he stops and he looks up at me. There was a standoff for, you know how it is. I've got my bow and I'm in a saddle and I don't know why that joker looked up, but he right. did. And he, I thought he was, I thought it was over. I thought he was going to bolt. Um, none of the other deer looked up, huh. just him. None of the other deer seen me for nothing out of all the three times. And I mean, it was pretty obvious. He looked up at me like something's going on here. Right. And had, I, I was covered, had a good face mask on, um, knee pads against the, the tree, sitting in my saddle. Those really help support you. And if, if I would have been in a stand, you're trying not to move. The saddle keeps you rock solid. Yeah. Um, you know, if I was standing in a tree stand holding my bow and everything like that, the saddle just kind of, you have a little bit more support. Yep, for sure. Um, so I'm sitting there, and finally he something clicks, and he starts to walk 12 o'clock to that scrape. I knew right where he was going, and he stopped in between because um, I drew. I was like, I'm not going to let you do that again. <laughs> yeah. um, I heard more deer coming behind me. Um, in fact, there was the doe in the, the uh, path, yep. and then there was more deer behind me. Um, another buck behind me it was like somebody flipped the light switch on and they were just materializing it you know in the rut if yeah. you get an open shot at one you better take it yes because they might lunge at a doe charge another buck um and the rest is history and and he went and piled up and what a surprise put my hands around him him was i mean just just massive beams, just huge frame. I mean, he lived up to his name. That's why we named him Whiplash. What a great hunt in history. Sad that he's gone because sure. he had so much history with him. Yep. Um, but great hunt. Enjoyed it thoroughly. I think that there's a, a couple things there to, to take away um, before closing out the podcast. And, and that's that's what you said, Seth, is 
when you get a shot at a deer, I, I know everyone, I'm guilty as anybody, is, is wants to milk that experience. <laughs> but when it's during the rut, sometimes the best thing to do is just draw and shoot and and just keep it simple um not try and and get fancy with it because like you said the attention span uh, of a mature deer uh with more deer piling in it, it's their nature at that point to go and check scent check push off other bucks especially if there's a receptive doe or potential of one being there so you did 100 percent the right thing that first opportunity that presented a good shot is take it not be uh not not try and get fancy with it at all, but just make it count and take home take home the deer, and that's exactly what you did. And, and I think it's so easy to um, miss opportunities like that by by saying, oh, maybe maybe I'll I'll wait and and he'll take a few more steps. If if that shot is there and you're confident with it, we're not saying push the envelope, but if it's there, hundred percent take it. And it might just be a twenty yeah. second encounter. Or might be two minutes, whatever it could be. At this time of the year, you make you make those opportunities worthwhile, and you take the shot. <laughs> That's right. I, I've I've had That's those experiences it. where you <laughs> wait too long, and then all you see is a a tail and the gleating uh, deer in the distance. That that's it. It's it's a uh, a sinking feeling. Let's say. Oh, for sure, for sure. And what I, an what an awesome. Awesome hunt. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I haven't been that cranked up in a while. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it got even better there. We were able, Chad and I and your son Trace were able to help you there um, take up the track and, and that expression of, my goodness, when when we came up on the deers, that deer is bigger than, than what anybody thought. Um, that's such a that's yeah. such a cool feeling, and and it doesn't matter. It doesn't come down. It's not an inches game. It, it's it is it is the experience. But to 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 have studied an animal as much as as you have and know the deer kind of inside and out, um, to have that surprise there on, on the end of the track job is always cool. You know, there's no there's no disappointment in that, and uh, it was just it was awesome being able to kind of experience that with you guys. And uh, put a nail in the coffin from a fantastic, fantastic deer. I know there's a lot of other um, awesome deer that you guys are kind of have your eyes and set on. You talked about getting your wife out this week. Um, Trace has still mm-hmm. got another tag. He he had a great hunt a couple weeks ago and tagged a buck with a with a compound. Or excuse me, with with a crossbow. Right. Um, but man, you you guys are guys are on fire right now, and this weather. Has got got me uh, got me fired up, got me fired up. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm excited. I know uh, I know you're still riding the high of of tagging whiplash, but there's a lot of season left to go, and a lot of good hunts to of have. Se- a lot of season, and uh, real quick, I was talking to another buddy, and and we were talking. This may be a another good podcast. Yeah, but let's hear it. We were talking about. Um, Typically, and he's a big deer head, big deer manager, big yep. deer manager. Um, whiplash, that was his range. We had that figured out. And, you know, I had an encounter with him with another buck, and you could tell these bucks were rivals. Um, don't have a trail camera picture of that deer, but what he and I were saying and what we noticed in years past is typically, if you're in a deer-rich environment like we are, typically if you harvest a mature deer in a certain area there's typically one that comes right up and kind of takes his place Mm -hmm. and kind of takes rule of the roost um and we're interested in fact he and i were talking about it yesterday we're interested to see if that happens Um, if it does what another great story we could possibly have no no doubt no doubt i think i think that would be uh, a fantastic podcast to be able to discuss that but um Man, a lot of exciting things to happen still yet, and uh, appreciate you coming on to be able to share that story with everyone, and uh, hope that it was it was something that people could uh, learn a lot from. Truthfully, you know, we all we all want to try and know and learn as much about the landscape that that deer love, deer biology, physiology, what makes them tick, what makes them get up, what makes them cross this trail or scrape or check this doe first, whatever it is. But you know, being let's say intimate with with knowledge of of a specific deer something special 
and it's something to definitely not take for granted as as you can learn a lot and use it to your advantage in harvesting that animal so a lot to pick up on deer a lot for sure well seth thank you sir we'll uh certainly have you back on here in a little bit i think uh i think there's another buck that's got your uh your name all over it if i'm not mistaken i hope you're right (laughs) (laughs) sounds good man well we'll be in touch um we've got some hunting to do all right all right thank you matt take care you too see you bud well there you have it guys what a fantastic podcast with uh, Seth Harker, Deer Killing Machine. Um, a lot to a lot to learn and glean off of uh, Seth and the experiences that that he's been able to have and watching deer just transition over time. Um, I- any deer that's able to reach maturity of a four and a half year year old and, and older um, is is a fantastic specimen. You know he didn't uh, certainly wait six for it to get to six and a half to harvest it. Was been chasing that deer for a while, but um, you know, just being able to, again, to get intimate with that, that deer and just figure things out has really helped, um, kind of close that window down of, of when to be able to hunt. I, I think that decision of where to hunt, how to hunt, um, when to hunt really becomes a lot more clear when you understand the landscape, the deer as, as a whole, not, not individual, but the deer herd as a whole, what they do and how they utilize your property. Um, that makes you that much better of a hunter. And the only way to do that is to be able to just get out there, um, enjoy it, learn it, manage the landscape, watch how deer react to it. Um, utilize those trail cameras to gather that additional information. When you're not out there, you're not out there to read sign. Those are incredible tools. Um, so, guys, hope you enjoyed that. If you have any questions, be sure to reach out through social media. Um, subscribe to YouTube and um, give us a shout through email at info at landandlegacy.tv. Guys, we're going to be out in the woods. This is this is uh, the time of the year where you need to be out there. Enjoy those hunts. Enjoy the time of November. Be safe. Have fun. And uh, send us some harvest picks, guys. Appreciate you listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>